When I was growing up as a boy in Minnesota, one of the things that I would like to do, like most children on a cold Saturday afternoon, was to channel surf. And to channel surf on one of those old tube televisions. You know, the kind with the big silver dials and the wood casing all around. And inevitably, as you would flip through the three or four channels that you had, it seemed to be a fairly common occurrence to end up on one of those old cowboy movies. We liked those movies because they were predictable in their nature. Now, I'm not talking about Clint Eastwood movies. I'm talking about older, older cowboy movies. The cowboy movies in which there were good guys and bad guys, and it was very clear who was who. The bad guys always wore gray and rode dark horses. And whenever they spoke, they spoke with a sort of a snarl. And the good guys always wore white hats and rode white horses. And periodically throughout the show, they would stop and they would sing to us with their guitars. (laughs) We liked those films because we all wanted to identify with the good guys. On Sunday, we'd go to Sunday school at our Lutheran church because most people in Minnesota are Lutherans, or at least they used to be. And sometimes it seemed like the same people who had written the screenplay for the movie had also written our Sunday school lessons. For the characters that we studied were all either very gray or very white. We knew, for example, that there would be a showdown in Egypt between Pharaoh, who wore gray, and Moses, who would be dressed in white. And it was no surprise to us that David sang with a harp, because in our minds, a harp was just another kind of guitar. And as I grew older, I grew tired of those cowboy movies because they were just so predictable. They didn't deal with real people living in a real world. Instead, they dealt with caricatures. They dealt with cardboard characters in a tissue paper play and perhaps just perhaps some of us felt that same way about the accounts that we learned in the Bible, maybe in our Sunday school class, those accounts that we have heard so many times, year after year, and maybe we didn't understand the deeper meaning, and we concluded that perhaps Jesus, like the cowboys, dealt with caricatures rather than real characters. Well, tonight, on Good Friday, I want to remind you of a story that most of us have heard many, many times. It's a story of real characters, of real good guys and bad guys in part of this crucifixion. And in Luke chapter 23, there are three main characters. Jesus, who is the innocent good guy, Barabbas, who is the guilty bad guy, and Pontius Pilate, who functions as the judge between them. And I want to read for you most of Luke chapter 23, 
It's a long passage, but it is the passage surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, and this is what it says. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent saying, he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, and made, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him with splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod And Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to them. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and say to the hills, cover us. 
For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one at his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the, two, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus did not deserve to die. <laughs> it might sound obvious. It might seem trite, but in Luke's account of the events leading up to and including the crucifixion, he makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was innocent and did not deserve to die. In fact, four witnesses who had no particular interest in saving him all testified publicly to his innocence. Pontius Pilate, King Herod, the thief on the cross, and the Roman centurion. Pontius Pilate was the Roman procurator of Jerusalem. He was the functional ruler of the land and the Roman authority. This guy had a difficult job to do and he wasn't particularly good at it. 
He was tasked with managing the Roman occupation of Jerusalem while keeping peace with the Jews. And this required him to exercise Roman law and Jewish law while exerting the right amount of authority and providing the right amount of flexibility with these Jews. And Luke chapter 23 tells us that the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate seeking a death sentence. And after a brief interrogation, right away in verse 4, Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. When he learned that Jesus had been ministering in King Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. Herod was the Jewish leader over Galilee. His father was Herod the Great, who had tried to kill Jesus after his birth, which resulted in a genocide of young male children under the age of two. And now, his son had the opportunity to finish the job. But, after desiring to see miracles and interrogating Jesus and mocking Jesus, they sent him back to Pilate. He didn't have him killed. Why? Because he was innocent. (laughs) And so, two earthly kings find the heavenly king innocent. And Pilate affirms this twice more. Verses 14 through 16, he says, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod. That's why he sent him back to us. Nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And after that, two more times, Pilate proclaims his innocence. Verse 20, he says it again. He addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. In verse 22, I found no guilt in him deserving death. And three more times after that, other people declare his innocence. The thief on the cross. This man has done nothing wrong. The centurion who witnesses his death. Certainly this man was innocent. And the people in verse 48 express their grief and their horror and their shame, which all imply innocence as they walk away from the scene, beating their breasts in agony. And so, why would Luke make such a big deal of Jesus' innocence to the point where he would with great repetition, proclaim it. As many as eight times in this account surrounding his crucifixion. There are a lot of elements that happened that day. There were a lot of interactions. There were a lot of things he could have reported. But to say again and again and again, there was no guilt in him. There was no guilt in him. He did nothing deserving of death. He was innocent. There was no guilt in him. Why would he emphasize that so much? Why would he tell us in great detail that Pilate found no guilt in him and neither did Herod and Pilate proclaimed his innocence three more times? Why are the details of the thief on the cross included in the story at all? And why would upon witnessing death and the sky turning dark and an earthquake over the land of all of the things that the centurion probably said in those moments, why are the only words recorded surely This man was innocent. Why such a focus on innocence? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? 
your internal justice meter might be a little weak most of the time. But when you are the one who's been accused of something you didn't do, that internal justice meter goes all the way up to 100. You want justice and you want it right now. We see this a lot with children. Multiple times a day perhaps when they accuse each other of making the mess or leaving that thing outside or breaking something in the house again. And in that moment, when wrongly accused, you feel it in a way that you didn't feel it before. And you become enraged and you become intensely desirous of justice. The repetition of innocence in Luke chapter 23, I think is there to help you to feel something. (laughs) Because chronological distance from historical events like this one maybe make our justice meter a little bit weak, but when you begin to really think through repetition again and again and again about trial and execution and innocence, The fact that Jesus did not deserve to die and this is an injustice that is only further exacerbated by what would happen next, then you begin to feel something that you might not have otherwise felt. This injustice is exacerbated through the incredible swap that would occur. Barabbas was a criminal There was no hiding the facts of his crimes. Verse 19 tells us that he was imprisoned for insurrection and murder. He tried to overthrow the local authority and blood was on his hands. And the crowd shouted for the criminal to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. Matthew chapter 27, 16 tells us tells us about Barabbas by describing him as a notorious criminal. That implies that he was not just known, but he was well known. And his crimes were not just petty in their nature, but they were heinous in their nature. And Luke emphasizes it again that Pilate acquiesces to the crowd, chanting for the release of Barabbas and Jesus' execution. And he says twice that the crowd was urgent in their pleas. And then Luke repeats the terms of the swap in verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they'd asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This was a substitution. (laughs) is a substitution. And when you think of a substitution, we can think of good substitutes and bad substitutes, depending upon what your goal is. You think about a substitution in a basketball game. Substitutes usually aren't as good as the starters, but play an important role on the team. You think of a substitute teacher 
you think of turkey bacon. (laughs) Which is a poor substitute for real bacon. You think of Splenda as a substitute for sugar. The list goes on and on and on. Some substitutions are good and some substitutions are bad. That depends upon your goal. Now, if your goal is justice, then it does not seem like this is a good or fair substitution. If you are pulling for the good guys, then this is not a good or fair substitution. But if you are the bad guy and you are interested in preserving your own life, then you are definitely happy that there is a substitute And the whole thing drips with irony because the name Barabbas, as you might know in Aramaic, means son of a father. Bar being son, Abba being father. Barabbas, son of a father. The son of a father was chosen by the crowd to be free while they chose to condemn the son of the father. And so Luke tells us that the substitution was completed The good guy took the place of the bad guy. The righteous endured the penalty of the unrighteous. And the substitute died on the cross next to a thief who proclaimed his innocence in front of a centurion who broke down and said, surely this man was innocent. And in front of a crowd who walked away beating their chests in agony because he was innocent. There's a doctrine in the Bible that is at the very center of the gospel. It's the doctrine of substitution. It's called penal substitution, the substitution of a penalty. And this doctrine is a thread throughout scripture again and again and again, and it's told specifically about Jesus in a variety of ways. Hundreds of years before his coming, Isaiah prophesied about this substitution. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's substitution. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, that substitution. Or Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or 1 Peter 2, 24, that says, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed, that's substitution. Or 1 Peter 3.18, which says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh and made alive in the spirit. In many ways, Barabbas is the foretaste of penal substitution. Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was guilty. Jesus, the innocent one, is delivered over to the punishment of death while the one deserving death is released and given new life. This is a preview of the grace that would flow forth from the cross forevermore. But through the cross, the substitution 
is not just physical in its application, it's also spiritual. And this, friends, is the core of the gospel. Substitution. And it's really good news. Part of the reason why we like those old cowboy movies is that it gives us an opportunity to identify with the good guys. (laughs) We envision ourselves on the white horse, saving the day, upholding honor, functioning as the agents of justice. But the more I look at the story of Jesus and Barabbas, I begin to realize something. That as much as I look up to and admire our hero, the good guy, the Lord Jesus, I can't identify with him so easily as the good guy in this story. I begin to realize something. The one that I identify with more easily is actually Barabbas. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't started an insurrection. I'm not a notorious criminal. Well, at least not to other criminals. But the more I think about this account and the more I think about God and the more I ponder his perfection and his holiness and am I brought to wonder and awe at his glory and I begin to think about him in relation to me and the more I learn about myself and my propensity to keep on sinning and my propensity to be selfish in my nature and the more I realize how far I am away from perfection, I begin to see that my sin carries with it an incredible weight, a weight that I feel actually physically and emotionally and spiritually. It's a weight that is upon me. It's a weight of a criminal. And it might not look that way to other criminals, but it certainly looks that way to a perfectly holy God. And that's why Jesus describes our sin by saying if anyone is angry with his brother, he's deserving of judgment. In fact, the same judgment as the murderer. Or if anyone lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm deserving of the penalty and of the judgment of God. I am Barabbas. And so are you. But my friends, we have a willing substitute. We have a substitute who died (laughs) that you might live. A substitute who loved you enough to lay down his life willingly for you. A substitute who bore the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to bear it. A substitute who embodies grace and mercy for those who need it. A substitute who rescues us from eternal damnation and secures our eternal future in glory. A substitute who gives hope to the hopeless, who gives power to the powerless, who 
gives righteousness to the unrighteous, a substitute who gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead, a substitute who gives eternal life to sinners, a substitute who makes the bad guys into the good guys. And his name is Jesus. And today we remember him in his innocence. And he will be your substitute. O guilty one, when you put your faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we need desperately someone to pay this penalty that we cannot bear to pay. Forgive us for our distance, our emotional and spiritual distance from the justice and injustice of the cross. Pierce our hearts today with the gravity of our own sin and with the gratitude of the substitute who bears it in our place. We trust him. We worship him. Amen.